We've been interviewing guests on Let's Find Common Ground for about two years now. Richard, what have you learned from them? Ashley, I've been surprised that despite all of the polarization around us, that there are so many remarkable people working to find common ground. Every two weeks, we release new episodes of our podcast. There are more than 50 of them. Find them all on the Democracy Group website. Or at letsfindcommonground.org. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. I'm Richard Davies. We find common ground one episode at a time. Even the scripture that I used earlier, love thy neighbor as thyself. But what if you don't love yourself? How could you treat your neighbor with any healthy sense of love? The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Lonely and Extreme with the God Squad, a conversation about how to really fix extremism. Joining the discussion today... We have Pastor Joseph Davis of Truth Gatherers Community Church, Pastor Gary Schultz of First Baptist Church, Father Tim Holita of St. Thomas More Co-Cathedral, and our facilitator is Dr. Dan Lesham, Executive Director of FSU Hillel. Before I turn it over to Dan, we'd like to thank Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series. Check them out online at floridahumanities.org to learn about the phenomenal programming they provide and support. All right, let's get on with the program. Here's Dr. Dan Lesham and the God Squad to explore Lonely and Extreme. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon, I suppose. We have a panel of all-stars, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm really excited to hear what they have to say on today's topic, which is Lonely and Extreme, a conversation about how to really fix extremism, which, as I reread that, I was wondering if maybe the title might be promising too much. I don't know if we're, (laughs) I don't know if we're really going to fix it in the next hour, probably, but like, I, I wanted a little more wiggle room. (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, it is a big question, and I think I'm going to let everyone kind of make their own initial statements about what their thoughts on the topic are. I just wanted to provide a little bit of framing that I've been thinking about, and then we can jump into the conversation and later into questions. I just happened to be thinking about this recently because the FBI just released a report on the hot yoga shooting that happened here, I think, almost four years ago. I don't know how many of you were here or remember that, but it involved a former part-time FSU student and uh, as the shooter and the full-time FSU student and faculty member as the victims. And I participated in the vigil at FSU in the days that followed. And in fact, if anyone remembers, that happened about a week after the shooting at a Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh, the Tree of Life Synagogue by another kind of lone wolf activist who was angry at HIAS, which is the Jewish Refugee Resettlement Agency that doesn't specifically any longer work with Jews, but works with refugees all around the world. And that was part of the person's belief that uh, refugees were, that this was part of a Jewish conspiracy to replace white Americans with foreigners. So I think that both of those instances and both of those vigils I attended about a week apart were in some ways connected, and the FBI report revealed, to people who were both lonely and extreme. Of course, loneliness doesn't equal extremism. Um, The title puts them together, and I think it's important that we separate them. But I do think that, that loneliness is an illness, 
not necessarily one that gets cured in the same ways, but one that has symptoms, like all other illnesses, and one that degrades its host, like every other illness. And that as faith leaders, as leaders of religious community, one of our jobs is to see to the health of our communities, our constituents, but also the larger community. And the real question is, how do we impact them? How do we reduce, how do we address loneliness? How do we reduce extremism? The studies show that people who are regular and active attendees at religious services tend to be happier, um, tend to be more likely to join other groups that are non-religious, tend to be more likely to vote, and in all other ways tend to be more likely to already feel connected and involved. So just by having a religious institution that hosts services and has activities, we're already seeing mostly the people who are doing better. So the question is, how do we continue to help our people do better, but how do we find and help uh, or offer opportunities to the people we don't see um, that are clearly there? None of this to justify extremism. Lots of people have loneliness and respond in lots of different ways. It's not an inevitable path. But I think that once you recognize that there can be a connection, that extremism can be the 25th step on a path that starts with feeling incredibly isolated, then I think that we can start following that path and thinking about how to break it apart. And what, if any, is our role and our role in addressing this because certainly there seems to be a great urgency. So let's go around. Sure. And be sure to introduce yourself and your community and another fun fact. Oh, wonderful. I agree as well. Uh, I believe today's uh, discussion and presentation is very layered, and um, I'm glad to be here. Uh, Joseph Davis, uh, Senior Leader of Truth Gathers Dream Center Church, a non-denominational church here in Tallahassee. Sometimes when people hear non-denominational, they think that it's a church without beliefs. Um, not, not true. <laughs> and I'm just glad to serve here on this panel. I, too, am drawn to this needed conversation of loneliness and extremism. And um, I'll just say as an opening statement, one of the things um, that I begin to think about are fears. All humanity, all people have some level um, or areas of fears. And I start thinking about um, what are the factors that makes those fears dangerous? What are the factors that makes those fears increase in a way that it becomes detrimental to uh, progress, civilization, humanity, and cooperation with one another. And um, those are some of the initial thoughts I had in thinking about this subject. And um, just the basic of fear and how those fears become magnified that they may be unruly and not fit social norms, um, not fit uh, laws, civil, uh, civic governments, and things of that nature. So again, I look forward to furthering this conversation with you all today. Gary Schultz. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist. And again, we are so thankful to be able to host uh, this panel this morning. Very glad to be with you all. And as I think about this topic, one of the reasons we're drawn to this topic, immediately go to two, two fundamental truths, that God supremely values us as individuals and he supremely values community. We, we have, each one of us as individuals has dignity and worth, and yet we are meant to live life together in community. Whether we believe that we are designed for that by God who made us, or whether we believe that we've been shaped for that by evolutionary processes, it's generally understood we need other people. And yet we live in a culture where we so prize individualism and yet so recognize we need community, but we only want community on our own terms. We, we only want community when it's community the way that we want it. And so you see this as, as a pastor, you see this when people will come into the church and say, well, I want the church to be this way and you're not this way. I'll, I'll go to another one or we'll do that with other groups. We'll do that with relationships. And I think of the most prominent metaphor that's used in the New Testament for the church is the, the human body. 
in the sense that we are one body as one person, and yet the body is made up of all kinds of, of different parts that have to work together, and how we truly need to strive toward that ideal to be a community. But part of that means surrendering a little bit of ourselves for the, the good of others. Part of that means recognizing one another. Uh, as I was talking about this here recently with, with our church in a sermon, we, we tend to pay a lot more attention to things even like our, our hair. And I'd say that's true even to me with the hair that I have or don't have instead of something like our kidneys or our spleen or our health and yet recognizing and coming through that each one of us matters goes back to that fear that, that Pastor Joe mentioned that, that we, we don't matter. We, we all are afraid of that. But we also matter together. And I think in that context, what do we continue to do to cultivate that community that all of us so, so desperately need while recognizing the, the worth of who we are as individuals? Father Tim from Co-Cathedral, St. Thomas More. I, I, we have a lot of thoughts on this. I, I think... I think these are complicated things, and I, the first thing I would kind of want to discuss is kind of what is extremism? Like, what do we even mean by that word? I think we use it, and we all kind of know what we mean when we say it, but it'd be kind of helpful maybe to think about um, what that means. I would prefer to see, I think, the issue is not so much as extremism, but ideology, um, and a kind of search for some kind of meta narrative or answer to all of the problems in our world. Um, and I think that's where we find people falling into ideology. Some are more common uh, than others, and some we call extreme because they're not as commonly held. Um, but they could be commonly held, and then we wouldn't call them extreme. So I think that's why it's important to kind of discuss what, what exactly is it we mean by that. I think it arises not just from loneliness. I think loneliness is it, but I think primarily from a society that that's we have what's taking place right now i think in our communities is can be seen as like a crisis of values a crisis of meaning crisis of loneliness sure uh, people are, are walking around with very little purpose and meaning in their lives and and they recognize that things are maybe wrong or off or and they're searching for some kind of solution and that can make them i think victim or prey to ideologues or extremists um, if we want to use that word so i think those are my kind of initial thoughts as exploring why uh, people are, are attracted to ideology in general, just like conspiracy. We talked a little bit about this last year, I think, with conspiracy theories. Why, why do people get sucked into that, right? I, I kind of see it as the same. It falls into the same circle in a way. Those are all great reflections. Thank you. And I think that the question of definitions is actually where I wanted to go next because I think we all know what we mean when we say loneliness, and I'm not sure that we do uh, with that either. And certainly with extremism, um, I think ideologies, just to jump ahead, I think ideology is complicated because we all believe in all kinds of ideologies. Um, it's just that our ideologies maybe tend to be less totalizing. That is, they, within the ideology, there's room for something outside of it. And there are other ideologies that are more totalizing, that like it accounts for everything and leaves no room for anything else that would fall outside of that. So the question is, how do we crack open the space in any of our beliefs that allows there to be something that exists outside it that isn't uh, worse or worthless because it happens to be outside of it, right? That ethics is really, to my definition, intentionally cracking open my space to allow something else to enter, right? That ethics is the interruption of the self to allow the space of another. So the, the risk with ideologies is that they can be totalizing and they can be very clearly us and them and creating those kind of value judgments. But I wanted to first talk about um, loneliness for a minute because I think that, I think it's something that people have felt, probably everyone has felt at one point or another, but I also think it's something that, has a, that, that operates on multiple levels, multiple resonances. I think um, Pastor Gary talked about, or it made me think about the, the way the Bible sets up a kind of normalized society, community, and culture. And it's certainly one that centers family, tribe, community. And, you know, studies and science has shown us since then that human beings really are designed to live with others, that we are not ideally suited to 
existing in a cave by ourselves. Um, we have physical needs, we have emotional needs, we have psychological needs. So I guess I would ask everyone to kind of chime in on what do you think, if there is one, what, what would be like a theological versus a cultural definition of loneliness, isolation? Um, I almost wonder if we can layer in like, if loneliness is a kind of dehumanizing space to be, then how would we understand its opposite? Like what is the human, I mean, we've started to tease that out a little bit. I just, I'm curious about like, what, what do you think religion or your community or your tradition tells you about both loneliness, where it comes from, and what its answers are, and what its risks are? Thinking from a theological perspective, uh, among um, Christian belief, of course, love thy neighbor as thyself, which also means uh, make yourself vulnerable to others. That's really actually what it means. We heard uh, more common phrases, do unto others as you will have them do unto you. Um, so it also means be relatable. These common phrases, ideologies, I think are you know paramount to being able to combat extremism. I want to be careful not to go off your question as well. But the way I'm com um, thinking about theology and ideology, without that rooted um, foundation, it is quite easily to stay isolated in a way that it becomes unhealthy or extreme or grow into beliefs that are not compatible or relatable in a healthy relationship with people. So there has to be or should be a type of um, human theology, I'll say a human theology, that roots us into commonality. Without that, the ideologies become extreme that um, I'm one in a million um, type thoughts or uh, no one else understands me. Um, and all those, those phrases are common, repeated too often, um, could, could appear dangerous. Um, every once in a while, everyone says, I don't think people understand me. That could be okay every once in a while, but if it's an everyday language, um, that could be problematic. So I think theology bringing us together for humanity. Can I jump in before we turn to Pastor Gary? So do you feel like religion in the way you've seen it, the way you practice it, the way you feel like it can be, ideally, how does it answer the question of nobody understands me? Or is that a question you want to pass on to Pastor Gary? It, it does. I think, I think it's only fair. I think it's only fair. Because this is what the subject is about. Right? Right? Sharing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I'm sharing. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> And I'll get there, and to build off of what you said, and I think loneliness is that longing for relationship, for connection, for community that is absent. And we do feel that in a number of different ways. Stan's brought out, we, 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 we can feel that physically. You know, isolating ourselves can actually change us or hurt us physically. We certainly feel that emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. Think of two prominent, again, Christian themes. One, reconciliation. And this is the idea that what God does for us in Jesus Christ is he brings us back to him, but not only so that we can have a right relationship with him where it had gone off course or been absent, but so that then through that we are able to have a right relationship with others. In other words, the Christian life is never just vertical it's always horizontal as well and then there are also the themes beyond that as, as we experience that that reconciliation that rightness that peace with others that we also begin to experience that in general with even the world itself and then while not as prominent a theme I, I do think that, that we begin to even experience that wholeness in and of ourselves which is how we're able to relate to one another and then, of course, building on that, of course, that, that requires love. And, and again, we think about love, but we, we throw around the word love. That, that's one of those words that means almost anything at, at this point. And we all tend to have different understandings of that. So we all have to come back to what is a, the Christian understanding of love, the biblical understanding of love is, is giving of yourself on behalf of the other. It, it doesn't, take away the emotional component of it. I think that's vital as well, but it goes far beyond a feeling or an emotion 
to a decided action on behalf. And we know that even when we do that, even if the emotion tends to be absent at first, that will tend to bring the emotion. And so again, when you think of how we begin to combat loneliness and that longing for community, that longing to be understood, so I'll come back to that, that question. I think if, if we are, are drawn to and, and understand who God is and God has brought us to himself, again, that, that understanding of reconciliation, we begin to understand that we are understood by God even if no one else understands us. And, and that's one of the things I think that we really do try to help people to understand. Other people are all, you're never going to be fully understood by anyone else in this life. That includes your spouse, that includes your children, that includes your parents. We all know that. But there is a God who knows you better than you know yourself. And beginning to understand that, we can begin to see how others understand us or how we can communicate, how we can begin to experience that, that relationship. Again, that's part of what we're designed to experience. And as Christians, I believe that's part of the reason that we're here, not just to model that, but to share that, whether it's shared back, to help other people to experience that. Pastor Gary, I just want to jump in, to throw in two more words that your comments made me think of. One is gratitude that you didn't mention. And the other thing is just related to your concept of love or acts of caring, that the studies show that expressing gratitude makes you feel grateful, whether or not you felt grateful before. And also that, for instance, to pick an example, serving soup at a soup kitchen makes you feel loved even if you are the one who's actually in that moment giving love, right? So these ideas that these are one-way streets that need to be reciprocated, in fact, the reciprocation is oftentimes built into the action itself, in my experience. No, and I think that's good. And even to build on that, sometimes I, I think we feel guilty for enjoying our, using our gifts or service as if it's not truly altruistic unless we're kind of suffering to love somebody. It's not truly <laughs> meaningful unless it hurts. But, but that's one of the things that I think we wouldn't begin to understand that. And, and again, the studies do support that. God, in his grace and love, designed us that way, that when we love others, we experience love. When we express gratitude, we're able to be grateful. When, when we Love is one of those things that when you share it, you get more of it. Yeah, not, not zero sum. I, I mean, it's, and then when you think about suffering, when you share it, you experience less of it because others are bearing it with you. And as we think about that, and so that, that's, that's absolutely a great point, a key part of that. There, there, it, there's that self-interest, but it, that's, God made us that way. Yeah, that's an interesting point we, we should come back to. Father Jim? So help me remind me of the question again. I think it was, <laughs> it was, it was what this, is loneliness? At this point, and, it's choose your own question. No, it, it's really trying, trying to understand loneliness from within our theological okay. perspective and whether our theology offers an answer. That's, you know, I mean, I think I appreciate what you're saying, Pastor Gary, which is that God sees and loves us all. But I think that when we start to think about this real world, it's, it, I think it has more to do with what can, what can we do? If we're someone who understands this message, what, it, what can we do to the, the stranger, the lonely stranger? Like, let's just create this figure of someone we might be encountering hundreds of times a day without realizing it. So I think... For one, I, I, there's a there's a something I call fundamental loneliness, which I think all of us can experience, and it's unavoidable. Which is that no matter how much time I spend with somebody or get to know them, and I can I can spend all of my life like telling them everything about me, they'll never know me like completely, right? So, and on a certain place, like I'm always alone in the world, and on another level, I'm never alone. And that is where I'm kind of following what, what Pastor Gary said was, is with God, that God is actually nearer to me than I am to myself. Last Sunday, our, our first reading was the Moses burning bush story where God reveals himself to him and gives him his name, which is like not a name. It's a mysterious, we could probably talk a lot about all of that. Um, but what I find fascinating about the name that's given um, is it refers to being I am, right? Um, 
being. And so that God, in my mind, is, is the source of all that is, that everything that exists, if we think of existence as a, as a verb, as an action, everything around us that exists is, is moving in a sense of action, of being. I know this sounds confusing, but just follow me. But it's this existence, uh, that God is at the source of that, and that includes myself, that not that, he, that I'm God or that this table is God or anything, but that, that somehow he's, I'm connected to that. I'm connected to him. And so he's nearer to me than I am to myself, so I'm never alone. And I think where I see this play out in my faith, in particular Catholicism, is that you know many of us take a promise of celibacy, meaning not to get married. And this is not an easy thing. You know, it's a challenging thing, and so is marriage, as I'm sure many of you could attest to. Um, it's no cakewalk, but it's a beautiful thing and a witness. You know, some people will say, "Oh, Father, you know, we should change that rule or whatever." But I, you know, there may be good arguments for that. But there's something very valuable about this witness which is there are people who cannot get married and there are people who are unable to get married for various reasons. And I, I can tell them, I can look them in the eye and seriously tell them, you're going to be okay, right? Last night I had a woman on the phone with me whose husband left her for another woman, you know, crying um, that I've been working with now for a few months um, and she's having a hard time with this, but I can, I can say, and mean it and say, you know, you're going to be okay and believe that and live that and not just say, okay, you know, good luck with that and then go home to my family or whatever. So there's, there's that witness too that I, that I believe and I think we live it in our faith. We have monks, we have people who've given their whole life to, to really kind of being a hermit, to devoting their life to prayer. And, and that's not my vocation, uh, thank God, I think. But um, I find it fascinating. I'll be at a monastery on Sunday visiting our, our seminarians and they're surrounded by Benedictine monks. Like, These people live this way. And I just think it's an amazing witness. And they're happy. Like, don't you think you'd be miserable? You'd think so, but they're not. They're happier than most of you, I promise. And I think there's a, it's, I mean it. And I, I think it's a great witness. I'm not saying you should all do that. But it speaks that there's something, at least in our faith, in my faith, that, that God can, can console us, right? And God can touch us at our deepest place and, and actually bring us joy and happiness. And I think that's, that's how I would say about loneliness in our faith. Okay, that's great. Thank you. It's beautiful. You guys are all bringing up so many interesting points. Okay, so I wanted to, I keep thinking, like, there's so many interesting strands. Which one do we take up next? But I wanted to take up your strands of the monks who are happy. And I was thinking, like, well, the, they must all have iPhones then. Or, you know, like, the, <laughs> the way our minds work, right? And then immediately I thought, they must not have social media at all if they really are happy. And so one of the themes of this conversation was about young people experiencing loneliness. And um, as someone who, my whole community is college students. Um, I can tell you, you know, we serve 4,000 students at FSU, Jewish students at FSU, and other students. Um, and I have colleagues around the state. There are about 25,000 Jewish college students in Florida. It's a huge number. And uh, we all run these nonprofits that are religious, cultural. Hillel serves a lot of different needs. And it's evolved. It's almost 100 years old. And the, this year, we all got together and said, let's, let's see if there's something fundraising is such a big part of the job. Let's see if there's something we can fundraise for together that we all need. What's one thing every Hillel in the state needs? Do you have a guess as to what we all agreed on? Yes. No, well, yes, obviously. <laughs> Sorry. I should specify. Uh, let me limit it to social, to, to social workers. Okay, the answer was therapists, social workers, mental health counselors. It wasn't another rabbi. It wasn't another person to like set up tables on the quad. It wasn't a cook to make good food, which is nourishing. It was therapists. And I think that one of the, and, and we've noticed it too, that our students' primary struggle is anxiety and depression, both of which are intricately related to loneliness. And part of that puzzle, I think, is the what's happened to sociality, especially in a time of COVID. We've done this before about social media as well. But I think that one of the things that happens, and this is something that came up both in Father Tim and Pastor Gary, mentioned in different ways, is that one of the ways we help other people be less, experience less suffering is to take some of that on to ourselves, whether that's loneliness or it's hunger or it's isolation or it's extremism. And yet these technologies that we've embraced, especially younger people, as a primary mode of self-expression and connection, 
encourage young people to only show their external selves. So they all take the same selfie where they look beautiful. They all pose and primp and prepare so that in the picture there is no vulnerability at all. So we are training ourselves to only show the least vulnerable version of ourselves to each other. And the least vulnerable, to follow up on something that someone said, is also the one that's least open to approach. Right? Like if you're the only, if you come to a party where you know no one, you look for someone standing by themselves, and that's the person you can start a conversation with. If we're always showing, I'm happy, I'm healthy, I have tons of friends, nothing could be more perfect in my life, not only are you creating an unapproachable self for others, you are probably therefore separating yourself more from people who could be friends and resources to you, and making that lie even more of a lie. Right? So the question is, how do we, is it, to use my word ethics, to use your word love, what is our responsibility in terms of, and to use this Jewish concept as well, that like our, our job is to, to, to mirror, to act like, to be in the image of God, and to do God's work on this planet. If my job is to alleviate and help alleviate the suffering of others, help people find connection, community, home, how do I, how do, I do that? And how do I teach others? How do, how do I encourage my students? I tell them to stop using social media all the time. That's not an effective technique. Don't try that. Um, but I just wonder with loneliness sometimes, are we all presenting ourselves as square pegs and everyone lonely feels like they're the round, or square holes and they all feel like they're the round peg with no one to connect to. So the question is, how do we make ourselves open and available, and how do we bring back vulnerability as a cultural value, if you agree that that is a value? I think it is. I, I, I don't know if it's a... I think it helps. I don't think you should be vulnerable with everybody, and there's limits to that, and we have to be careful with that. And I think, it, But it's a vehicle of intimacy, I would say. The more vulnerable I am with somebody, the more you feel like you're closer to them and you connect with them. I, I'm interested in the fact that like in 2022 where I think we could say, I think we could all agree that we have more access to psychological help, right? More knowledge about psychology in a scientific sense, right? We know all these things, biology about the brain, all these things. We have more access now um, to medicines and things that will influence our chemicals in our brain to make us feel better. Like with, in spite of all of this, uh, we could say kind of progress, so to speak, in that, in that division or realm of science, uh, this is becoming more and more of an issue, uh, which, which tells me at least at first thought was like, okay, well, maybe this has nothing to do with psychology totally, that there's another thing that perhaps we're missing that's going on in society that although people are living, college students that I work with as well, are living in the midst of, of an abundance of wealth that I didn't even have, um, and I wasn't in school that long. I might look differently, but I was just in school like 2004 is when I graduated, so it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of what these kids have, and I would have loved to have had all that stuff foolishly. Um, and what I've seen is it doesn't make them happy, and anxiety, suicide, all of these things are, are increasing. I see it all the time in my office as well. Uh, high school students, high school students are like overwhelmed with anxiety and so many of my meds. Again, I don't, I don't, I, I, that's the question that I would have is why are we lonely, right? And, and so I think to answer that, I have to go back to when, when have I felt most connected or less or not lonely? And it's been when I've been in groups with people, we had some kind of a unifying value or a unifying purpose or a unifying, you know, goal or something that brought us together that we kind of shared in that superseded or transcended perhaps some of our differences, right? But Father Tim, don't yeah. you think that like, in some ways, our society is getting really good at being in these shared communities of shared value, but they're smaller and smaller communities that are defined more antagonistically against all the other communities. And so we can be in a community of people who all feel maybe not lonely, but aggrieved and like everyone else is out to get them, which is kind of like a communal loneliness. But I think, so what is it when we see, when we say community yeah. nowadays, a lot of times we're, we're talking about online communities. Right. And that's I think the traditional idea of community was that, you know, we all live in a society together and we have to like get along and accomplish goals. And, and maybe, again, there was a unifying principle to us working together. But now we, I can choose the community I want to be a part of. Um, and hopefully they, they meet 
have the ideological purity that I'm seeking, which means it's basically everything I already agree with or believe in. And whenever that, it goes off that, then I, I leave that community and find another one. And then I think that creates all of this sort of, everyone's against me, I'm against everybody else, they're a threat, and so on. And I think we're living in a false reality. Being one, amongst one another, again, I feel like seeing the face of the other is to, is to overcome that. And that's what we're not doing enough of. We're too busy on our phones. We're too busy. Our, our neighborhoods are designed to keep people away from each other. You drive in your garage. You get out of the car. You shut the garage. You don't see your neighbors. All of those sort of things that are, I think are, are, are really a cause of what we're experiencing. Well, and even to go back to, to social media, when we begin to replace what I would say physical, I, I really want to use the word authentic, community with, with social media, social media has good aspects. It can be a good supplement to community. But when it replaces authentic community and is the only authentic community that one experiences, it does exactly that because it's designed to only place you around others. But there are so much, I think social media is a big part of it, but there's much more than that, that drives us in our world today to fear, distrust, hate, people who think differently, people who, who understand the world differently. And we end up in communities where we're only reinforced by that, and that's what social media encourages. And as we increasingly consume our media through social media, that's the only media that we are exposed to. It, it's very rare that you'll find a person who will purposely expose themselves to other points of view that doesn't necessarily agree with their own. But to go back to Dan, what you brought up, that part of living and believing that not just me and people like me, but every single person is made in the image of God and has is worthwhile dignity and, and is worthy of honor. We have to do that. Otherwise, we won't have that, that kind of community. I think, Tim, that you're talking about, it would, it's impossible. I'm also thinking about several things here. Uh, number one, uh, I was kind of overcome with emotion sitting here for one reason. Uh, this year, one of the themes that our church has been leading is what I call multiplied compassion. Please don't ask me how I come up with multiplied compassion. Um, <laughs> or I call it compassion to the extreme or to, to the max. That's better. It has less math. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it may sell, sell better, too. Because everybody, I know every time I say it, and I'm, for some reason I'm fixated on this multiplied compassion, and everybody kind of looks, and I'm like, yeah, multiply. You know, anyway, um, but one of the things I'm thinking about, and I'm going to try to tie it together in my thought pattern here, is we have to be able to still champion diversity in our silos. Because if not, we become more overwhelmed by the biases we already have. Because those groups that we uh, go to, the churches that we go to, the groups that we go to, they connect us in a fundamental belief, but there are some biases or some themes that also gather us with those like-minded people. And if we're not careful and we don't still champion healthy diversity within those silos, we ourselves become isolated and less capable of being a solution to extremism. So those are one of the things I was really thinking about. How do we still champion advocacy? You know, champion advocacy. Um, two scripture references that really come to mind. One of them was a story I wasn't as familiar with as I am this year, was a story of a tree planted in a garden and it has not bear fruit. Well, the, the owner of the vineyard has decided that time is up for this tree that's not bearing fruit. I can think about it easily. It's his vineyard. It's taking up space. He wants to see fruitfulness. He wants to see it grow. He has decided it's time for this tree to grow. But the dresser of the vineyard advocates on behalf of the tree and says to the owner of the vineyard, give it another year. It's like the He's able to sympathize with potentially slow growth, 
people who don't materialize as faster as others. And he advocates on behalf of this owner and says, give it one more year. We're going to prune it, cut around it, and hopefully come back another year and hopefully we'll have some fruit on the tree. So that ability, going back to one of your other questions, what... Um, I'm keeping track of who's going back. <laughs> and that's why I'm going back to this advocacy. Has our ideology and beliefs made us more of a solution to extremism? Or has it put it into another scripture reference that has really challenged me, almost to the point of tears? It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Because we rave over the conclusion that we need to be a good Samaritan. And when I read the story again, I'm challenged as a person of Christian belief that maybe I was the Levite. Maybe I was the priest. And I overlooked the person. So everyone, everybody runs to be the Samaritan. And the Samaritan biblically, culturally, was supposed to be the least likely person, potentially, to reach out to that person who was robbed. Why? Because they also experienced disenfranchisement. So they, Samaritans were considered disenfranchised people. You know this woman as the well, Samaritan. So it seemed like the Samaritan who helped the person who was robbed was supposed to be the least likely to help. But the more likely person to help is the person who was helped by God. And I'm challenged by the good Samaritan person that maybe I'm the priest and the Levite who's overlooking people. So first of all, preach, because that's awesome. Um, that was really nicely put. It makes, me, it makes me think of so many things, but one of them, you know, I studied the Holocaust for many years, and so one of the things that I studied was rescuing behavior. Who's more likely to have provided aid or rescued uh, Holocaust victims? And why did they do it? And, you know, by far, most people did not. And uh, there were many people, and it's not black and white, there were people who helped this person but turned in that person, and, or who helped this person but wanted money for it. There's, it it's a very complicated field. Um, but what they found was that there was almost no solid predictor of what was more likely to make someone um, be a helper. It wasn't religion. It wasn't belief. It wasn't, it wasn't even wealth that at first, I mean, wealth is sort of a necessary precondition because if you don't have food for yourself, it's very hard to provide food for someone else. But what they found was that it was people who grew up in a certain type of home. And it was a type of home where they heard the messages, you are not alone, you are a good person, you are loved. And they were people, and by and large, when you ask, why did you do it, you'll never hear a, a real answer, what I would call a real answer. The most common answer is, I did what anyone would do. You know, in spite of the fact that, you, no, <laughs> that is 100% untrue. Um, but that they didn't see themselves as having overcome some huge hurdle or even internal conflict to be, to be that rescuer. And it also reminds me that in the Jewish tradition, we're about to come up to Passover, and why is Passover the center point of the Jewish tradition and what Rabbi uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs has shared a video with you all, but he says is, this, is the central reason that there are still Jews on the planet is because of Passover. Why? Because in order to observe Passover, you have to come together with other people, and you have to tell a story. And the story is the story of how and why you're connected to the people you're sitting with. And it's a story that always strikes me as significant because it says over and over and over, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. The whole point of the event is to be a constant reminder that you were a slave. And I think with my students, what other culture or community defines themselves as having emerged out of slavery? Most cultures' origin myths have them as kings or as conquerors, not as subjugated peoples. Um, it's question and answer time? Oh my gosh. You guys are too interesting. If you were more boring, I would have noticed it way before now. Um, so I'll, I'll stop right there. Um, we, we, we definitely want the questions. I'm sorry.
Next time, like, throw things at me, please. Make it. Make sure I notice. Uh, right here. I don't know if any of you've read the book Rise Out of Hatred. The book Rise Out of Hatred. Yes. I haven't read it. Okay. It is about a white supremacist, a, a young man raised in that. He goes to New College, so unlikely, and he's isolated and alone, and a, a Jewish fellow student invites him to their Friday dinner and how this has changed his entire life, that act of kindness. And it reminded me of your story saying the least likely person to reach out to him. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing, and it talks about the evolution of this man who's now in Chicago owning a Ph.D., it reminds me of the conversations around cancel culture and calling people out versus what this is, which is calling people in, which is a beautiful, yeah. Other questions, comments? You talked about the need for counseling and the benefits to uh, educating. How can we apply that to a younger age? Because, you know, you're not born extremists. You have to grow, and the education factor is huge. Yeah. And how do we get that counseling, you know, nonviolent communication, restorative practices, how do you get that in the conversation early on, and, and at least at the college level? Yeah. Well, I, I know one of the things that struck me, one of the, the articles, and I think, Dan, you referred to it earlier, that we looked at in preparation for this was about the background of the person who, who committed that hot yoga shooting. One of the things they brought up in that article was how educated he was. He, he had an undergraduate degree. He had a, a master's degree. He was apparently very intelligent, but then went into his, his home life. And we recognize, and we all recognize that people have, it runs the, runs the gamut. And, and there's a sense if, if you had parents who, who poured into you and, and loved you and, and modeled that, you, you benefit from something that so many other people, unfortunately, don't get to benefit. But I do think that that makes a huge difference when we're able to, to actually help parents to do that because so many parents can't do that on their own. And, and I, I go back, I've got three young daughters, and I go back to how our church at the time came around us or, or continues to come around us now. Uh, or, or how you have friends and family and you have those relationships. I do think that makes a big difference. And so what's that mean for us? Can we possibly be that kind of person who can speak into a family's life? Because I think if we leave that just to, to schools or other institutions and ignoring that foundation, you can do some things, but, but you're going to miss a, a whole lot. And so I, I do think it comes back to how are we and who can we impact. And I think we often get discouraged because we think, well, I I can't possibly impact that many people, but how valuable is even one life that might be changed by the the time, the investment, the love, the sacrifice that we could pour into somebody? And then you're not just talking about a life, then maybe when they have a family, and then you're talking about a generation of people who have experienced change. And not just within the family, but my children, when we come back from the mall, will say, oh, that person was so nice to me. Like, they'll remember it and bring it home with them. Um, so it is all about every interaction they have with an adult. I mean, most of them are around with their parents, let's say, for my children. But they remember every interaction that they have, and they're seeing modeling, which is kind of shocking and a little bit scary. But I think that for us, I can't tell you how many Holocaust survivor narratives say, I'm alive today because that one day in the concentration camp, this German smiled at me, not gave me food or water, but acknowledged me as a human being. Uh, Thank you. First of all, this has been great. Y'all are wonderful. Um, This is more of a comment than a question, but the writer of the book of Hebrews in the 13th chapter, second verse, says, show hospitality to strangers because in doing so, some of them entertain angels unaware. And I, I think we've all all of us in this room have had that experience and, and, and have reaped the benefits of that experience of showing hospitality to someone who was different from us and they turned out to be this huge gift from God in our lives. And I think it's an integral part of this sort of discussion. I think we have time for one more question. Yeah? Yeah, please. I, I noticed that uh, I think separation, the sense of separation is the most common ground 
separation from God, separation from others, separation from self. Can you folks consider talking a little bit about the relationship between loss, loneliness, and isolation? You said that was good, so you're the... <laughs> you unmuted yourself, so to speak. Well, I did, and then his, his last point kind of put me in a different space after I said yes. But the first part of separation, um, I want to answer it this way, and I think I'm going to need everyone else to help me answer this great question. My first thing about separation, um, why it's so um, important and leads to other things, I want to go back to separation from God first. Even the scripture that I used earlier, love thy neighbor as thyself, but what if you don't love yourself? How could you treat your neighbor with any healthy sense of love? So the whole premise is even love thy neighbor as thyself is that you have first been loved by God reconciled by God. Even for the scripture, that scripture verse to work is come from the understanding that you have now been brought back to God. So I think what I want to say, first part, to at least answer part of it, is we try to give away principles for living, patterns for living, but I think it's also a person who lives it. All right, so principle, pattern, person. So I want to go back to person. We got to be able to reduce the separation um, by being a witness to that conversation um, and and trying to further and fill in the gaps of separation. That's the first thing I want to say. I'm going to have to pass it on and answer the other part, please. I think that's well said. And what comes to mind, I mean, one of the ways that, that I mean, Jesus describes salvation, I, I was lost, but now I'm found. You could say, I was blind, now I now I see I mean, there is that sense where those things are, are bound up together, but, but it is God intends that when he brings you to himself that you experience community with him. And the way that we experience that community, we as, as Christians, we understand this, is through the community of others. Those are never one or, or the other, which means that it's incumbent, and again, you think of the command then given to believers that as God seeks and saves the lost, so are we to do the same. And those are active effort. That, that's, that's not easy when you really think about that. But each one of us is capable of, of doing that, just as we need others to do that for, for us. And sometimes I have to tell people, you have to allow your others to do that for you, just as you're trying to do that for others. And that's the way that I believe life was is supposed to work. I I was two weeks ago. I had a little vacation. My buddy runs the Catholic school at Key West, so I got to go down there and stay for free and go fishing, and it was awesome. And um, but what was interesting being there was it's such a small small island, huh? How many couches does he? Yeah, <laughs> 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 it was cool, you know. Um, yeah. He knows, but he knows everybody on the island because it's a small island and everybody knows each other. And being there, you see like the people who they kind of know each other. There's a sort of shared history and shared concerns about hurricanes and whatever and issues with the mainland and Dade County or whatever. And they provide their water. And there's all this sort of, again, this connection, right? And, and you can walk everywhere. When I was there, I, I parked my rental car at the church and I never got into it until I left because I was able to walk everywhere I went. And, and I think, so that's, that's like an easy thing to have a sense of community there. It'd be interesting to do a study on um, what's the psychological well-being of people who live in Key West. But, so I think part of it is we have to recognize, it might be an interesting find. It really was an interesting, I, have to, I mean, that's a side, but it's a, kind of a laissez-faire attitude there, and it makes things less dramatic, right? There's a lot of stuff we'd consider kind of like, wow, I can't believe I just saw that. Um, but it's not a big deal there. So it's like not dramatic. You know, it's just, who cares, you know? You're not going to get attention. So, because it's, it's Key West. So I, but I wonder, we can't, we don't live there. That's not where we live. Um, and I think we have to recognize the problem, the situation that we're in, which is that we live in very separated society. We're alienated. We don't have a, we don't even have a common national story anymore. There's, that's become subject to politics and debate 
and ideology, right? So this is, this is the world we're living in, and we can complain about it, but what, what can I do? I think we have to recognize this reality that I'm probably not going to get connected sitting in my house in the suburbs, right? I need to find community. I need to go out and meet people. And I think, uh, if, I, if I know a friend of mine who was an AA had told me years ago that the advice given to them when they're feeling hungry, alone, hungry, angry, lonely, tired is go out and help somebody, go out and reach somebody, you know, go call somebody. So I think as a, as a word of advice to everybody, and if you encounter people who are struggling with this, you know, it's not just to say social media is bad because it is, and they're not going to listen, but, but how do you, we have to recognize this is the situation, the structure that we're living in. And we have to work against that somehow. And that might mean getting out and joining something or helping or volunteering to, f- to find that connectedness and to overcome that separation, loss, and loneliness. Thank you for those amazing questions. I want to, we need to stop here. But before we go, just join me in thanking this amazing panel. This was not an easy topic. Hey there, it's Vanessa back with you. I have to tell you, I thought this program would leave me feeling quite heavy, but actually I feel hopeful. I think these guys really have it figured out and they're leaders as they practice community building in their daily lives. One theme that came up over and over was how people are meant to live among others in community. And we heard about how some modern day trends can lead us to this place where we're having less authentic connections and how that can lead to more loneliness and extremism. So check this out. Just yesterday, I went to a memorial service for someone who was the exact opposite of lonely and extreme. And you know what he was instead of lonely and extreme? He was the epitome of community, and he had to be one of the happiest people on this earth. Randy was one of the founders of the Miccosukee Land Co-op, where I happen to grow up. It's an intentional community started by a bunch of hippies in the 70s who wanted to live among each other on hundreds of acres of beautiful land where they each have their own plots, but they also have a lot of common land for community activities. So Randy helped create the community where he still lived at his death almost 50 years later. And all that time, he was known as a generous giver and a friend who created beautiful spaces and buildings and events and music in that community for 50 years. And here's what's fascinating to me. At the beginning of the service, Randy's grandson asked everyone to stand up whose house Randy had worked on, and about 80% of the people stood up. And then he asked us to stand if Randy ever helped us on a project, at which point basically everyone was standing. Truly remarkable, and what a legacy he leaves. So the very next day, today, Here I am working on this program, and I hear Father Tim share that advice that his friend in AA received. When you're feeling lonely, etc., go out and reach somebody, go out and help somebody. And a light bulb went off for me. It's no coincidence that Randy was one of the happiest people I know. He lived his life fully in community, and he served the people of his community every day. So, hey, to Randy out there, I think you cracked the code, my friend. Y'all know who else cracked the code on happiness? Arthur Brooks. People keep telling me how much they loved our recent program about happiness because Arthur Brooks actually told us what the path to happiness is. So you don't have to rely on my anecdotal story. Arthur's findings are based on science and research. Check it out, two episodes before this one, episode 53. And I mention all this because I just really think that these two topics are more related than they seem. Loneliness and happiness seem like completely opposite topics, but really it's kind of two different ways of living and the inverse of one is sort of the other. And as we think about how to move forward from here, I think that what Arthur had to say about happiness is 
really sort of a fascinating next step. Where do we go from here? And speaking of people who have cracked the code, we've got another guy to introduce you to. Next episode, you'll meet Alex Workman, who's also a great example of intentional community building. And he does it through coffee dates all around his local community. After a long time of doing this, what he's got to share with us is very remarkable. We can't wait for you to hear from him next episode. All right, before we say goodbye, we'd like to give a huge thank you to Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series. We're grateful to them for their ongoing support. And we'd like to thank Bill and Jill Maddox for their generous donations that help to make this podcast possible. To stay up to date with all that's happening with the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us and subscribe to Village Squarecast wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate you listening to Lonely and Extreme with the God Squad. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks for listening to Village Squarecast. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. There's no getting around it. There's a lot to be frustrated about. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? I'm Simone Leeper, host of Democracy Decoded, a podcast where we examine our government and discuss innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season one, we'll take you on a journey where we delve into the nuts and bolts of our campaign finance system. We'll look at the effects of secret spending at both the federal and state level, explore where and how foreign governments are spending to attempt to influence American elections, and investigate the fight against the outsized influence wealthy special interests have on local elections. Democracy Decoded is a production of Campaign Legal Center. Find us at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts.